wonderful to look out and see those who are able to be out this evening to worship God, to enjoy coming before His throne together as we did in the great prayer that Adam led us in and listening to His Word read and singing songs that encourage us to revive and honor and glorify God and to honor His Word. And we'll be doing that tonight in this lesson as we think about contrasting two covenants. One of the really important things for those who want to understand the Word of God and who love it, desire it more than gold, more than fine gold, and really want to understand what the Bible is all about, is to grasp the difference between the two major covenants that we have in Scripture. So we'll be talking about those covenants and the contrast between them. Uh, This is a concept, though many in this room would probably consider it to be rudimentary and very fundamental. It is a concept that I think the vast majority of people who call themselves Christians in this world don't understand and don't have a good grasp of. And for that reason, uh, mix up the covenants and actually are doing things that are not a part of the covenant of Jesus Christ because they simply don't understand the differences in the covenants. It's a really critical thing for us to understand so that we might please God, but also to help our neighbors, many of whom have a lot of trouble with some of these uh, actually pretty plain concepts. When we begin to talk about covenants, the Bible abounds in covenants. Uh, God made covenants with uh, a number of individuals, oftentimes extended to their descendants and others. Uh, Some of these were far-reaching, really touching all of mankind. Others were really maybe just touching the particular individual that God was making the covenant with. But basically a covenant is God says, I'm going to make an agreement with you. It's normally something that he lays out and uh, then that man agrees to, uh, which usually includes conditions to be met both by God and the person with whom he's making the covenant. And so you think about one of the early covenants that's made in Scripture that is far-reaching, and that is the covenant that God made with Noah. God promises in Genesis 6 and verse 18 that He would make a covenant. He sends the flood upon the earth. Noah is saved in the ark along with his family and one of all of the creatures, of each kind of creature, I should say. And so you have in Genesis chapter 9 and verse 9, When that is finished, God says to Noah, As for me, behold, I establish my covenant with you and with your descendants after you and with every living creature that is with you. So God is making a covenant not only with Noah, but with all of his descendants, which includes all of us, as well as, he says, with all the animals, the birds, the cattle, every beast of the earth with you, of all that go out of the ark, every beast of the earth, every last one of those animals, God is making a covenant with them as well. And here's the covenant. He says, Thus I establish my covenant with you. Never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood. Never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And so from that time until now, there has never been a worldwide flood to destroy all of the creatures of the earth. There have been plenty of floods. We might have one tonight, but it'll just be localized and all the creatures won't die. Uh, And this covenant God has made good. And he says, uh, the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is perpetual for generations, I set my rainbow in the cloud and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. God makes this covenant and gives us a sign. And he's kept that covenant that he made with Noah and every living creature 
since then. We go forward and we can think about covenants that God made elsewhere in Scripture and further on, like with Abraham, uh, where God promises in Genesis chapter 15 and verse 18, He would give Abraham's descendants the land in which Abraham was dwelling, called the promised land. Of course, He repeated that covenant not only to Abraham later, but also to Isaac and Jacob, Abraham's sons. And so they uh, had that land promise that God fulfilled, as we know, gave them the land and everything that He said He would do. In Second Chronicles chapter 21 and verse 7, mentions a covenant that God made with David uh, concerning uh, his seed sitting on the throne of Judah perpetually. And so you have that Davidic covenant, which, ha- which has ramifications still today, obviously, because Christ is of the line of David, and he is sitting now, right now, on the throne of David. These are just examples of covenants, agreements that God made, laid out with man, and made with man through human history. The Bible contains, though, two great covenants, general covenants, between God and His specially chosen people. And these covenants we sometimes refer to as the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. One through Moses with the Israelites, made at Mount Sinai, and the other through Jesus Christ and those saved by His blood that was really uh, instigated at the cross of Christ and confirmed by Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost. These two covenants, again, we call the Old and New Covenants. I invite you to turn your Bibles to the book of Hebrews, which mentions both of these covenants, discusses them both, and contrasts them both. And so we'll be getting a lot of our information uh, this evening out of the book of Hebrews. We'll pick up Hebrews chapter 8 and verse 6 to start with. Talking about Jesus Christ and His priesthood, he says, He has obtained a more excellent ministry inasmuch as He also is the mediator of a better covenant, which is established on better promises. So Jesus comes and is the mediator of a better covenant. Moses was the mediator of the previous covenant, but now Christ has come for a better covenant. The writer says that if that first covenant had been faultless, if the one God had made with Mo- through Moses had been faultless, no place would have been found for a second. But finding fault with them, that is, they did not keep their end of the bargain, they broke covenant repeatedly, talking about the Israelites, Uh, finding fault with them, he says, behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Now, he's quoting there from Jeremiah chapter 31, where he promises through the prophet Jeremiah that a new covenant would be made. Well, this is about 600 B.C. that that promise is made. The covenant had been in effect for seven, eight hundred years by this time, but it wasn't working. So God promises a new covenant to replace the one He made through Moses. Finding fault with them, in verse 8, He says, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Jacob, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to lead them up out of the land of Egypt, because they did not continue in my covenant. I disregarded them, says the Lord. They broke the covenant. The covenant was not working. Therefore, I disregarded them, says the Lord. This is the covenant, though, that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, says the Lord, I will put my laws in their mind and write them in their hearts. You remember the first covenant, the laws were written on stone. But now God promises to write them on the heart of covenant people. You could be a part of the covenant that God made with Moses and not know one single law. In fact, you entered into the covenant as a child. As a child. 
When, as a male, you were circumcised on the eighth day, you were regarded as a part of that covenant. The covenant was on stones, not in the heart. But God says, I'm going to write the new covenant in people's hearts. And I will be their God, and they will be my people. And then my laws will be in their minds. None of them shall teach his neighbor, none his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they all shall know me. You didn't have to know the Lord to be a part of the Mosaical Covenant. As I said, you could be a, a child. But now, you must know the Lord to come into the covenant. They all shall know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful to their unrighteousness. Their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. And that he says a new covenant, he's made the first obsolete. What is becoming obsolete and now growing old is ready to vanish away. So here you have the two covenants presented to us in the words of the writer of the book of Hebrews. Plainly, vastly different, obviously, made at different times, made with, with different people. The Israelites in the case of the Old Testament law. But now, under New Testament law, under the New Covenant, what we find is that one is not an Israelite, one is not a Jew who is one outwardly, but the circumcision now is not physical, it's circumcision of the heart. Paul writes about that in the book of Romans. So the covenants have different ways of entering into them and a different focus altogether, as we'll see as we go forward. The new covenant, the Hebrew writer is at pains to tell us, is a better covenant, better in every way, in every way we can think about. It's a better covenant. Uh, it was introduced that way to us in Hebrews chapter 8 and verse 6, but even earlier on in Hebrews chapter 7 and verse 22, Jesus has become a surety of a better covenant. It's called a better covenant twice then in 7.22 and in 8 and verse 6. It's better because the old covenant was a covenant of bondage. The new covenant is a covenant of liberty. Paul touches on this at some length in Galatians chapter 4. He writes to the Galatians, and the problem in Galatia was that there were people who had been part of that old covenant, Jews, who had come into a relationship with Jesus Christ and were now supposed to be uh, part of the new covenant, but they were wanting to bring things over from the old covenant, especially circumcision. And, and Paul is greatly concerned about that. You can't live with one foot in both worlds. You can't be a party to both covenants because they're antithetical and they are not the same at all. Not in their basis, not in their goals, not in anything. And so it is that Paul in Galatians is very concerned about the Galatians trying to have one foot in both covenants. And he uses an allegory in Galatians chapter 4 to explain the vast differences between those two covenants, related especially to the fact that the first covenant was a covenant of bondage. And here's what he does. If you pick up the reading in uh, Galatians chapter 4 and verse uh, 21, he says, Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, th those who desire to go back to the old covenant, do you not hear the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a bondwoman, the other by a free woman, but he who was of the bondwoman was born according to the flesh, and he of the free woman according to the promise. So Abraham was given his wife's handmaid, Hagar, and through her he had a child. That child was Ishmael, born into slavery, born as a slave, born as a servant. 
God's promise was that Abraham would have a child by Sarah, his aged wife. When that child came, Isaac, he's a free man. He's born to inherit uh, the blessings of Abraham and the covenant that was given to Abraham. So you have the contrast between these two children born to this man, Abraham, and then Paul explains the allegory. He says, uh, he who was born in the bondwoman was born according to the flesh, verse 23. The free woman was born, the free, uh, the free woman was born through promise, which things he says are symbolic. For these are two covenants, the one from Mount Sinai, which gives birth to bondage, which is Hagar. For this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to the Jerusalem that now is and is in bondage with her children. That just as Ishmael was in bondage, it represents a covenant of bondage. The covenant that was given at Mount Sinai later on. Whereas the covenant that is through the free is a covenant of liberty. He explains, Paul does in verse 28, we brethren as Isaac was are children of promise, which means we're children of freedom and liberty. And Paul begs the Galatians then not, go, not to go back to this, this bondage of the old covenant, but to experience all of the freedom that we have in Christ. Freedom from sin. Freedom from the law of sin and death. Where in the old covenant, you sinned, you died, there was no real remedy for that, as we'll see. But the New Covenant provides the ultimate remedy. The Old Covenant was a covenant of death. The New Covenant is more glorious and is a covenant of life. You might look at 2 Corinthians, where in chapter 3, the Apostle Paul talks about himself as an apostle of Christ. The other apostles as well, I think, included in his thought process here. As he says in verse 6 of 2 Corinthians chapter 3, we are made sufficient ministers of the new covenant. Not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Someone might think, well, what is he talking about letter versus Spirit? Is he talking about people who want to do God's will exactly versus those that just are kind of floating along in some spiritual... No, that's not what he's talking about. The letter is the requirement of the old covenant. The Spirit is the requirement and the life that's in the New Covenant. That's what's being contrasted. I know that because what he goes on and says in the following verses. If the ministry of death, verse 7, written and engraved on stones. What's he talking about? What was, writ what was written and engraved on stones? We've already mentioned it. That Old Covenant. The Ten Commandments. And that which went with it. Engraved in stones at Mount Sinai. If that covenant was glorious, and it was, the new covenant is far surpassing that glory. He says, if the ministry of death, which is what he calls it, written and engraved on stones, was glorious so that the children of Israel could not even look steadily at the face of Moses because of the glory of his countenance, which glory was passing away. Moses, as he went up to meet God, had this, you know, came down from the mountain, his face was radiant because of the experience, but that all faded away along time. Paul is saying, with the glory of that covenant, the ministry of the Spirit, Spirit shall it not be more glorious, he says in verse 8. 
If the ministry of condemnation had glory, the ministry of righteousness exceeds much more in glory. What does he call, though, that old covenant? He's called it a ministry of death and a ministry of condemnation. What does he call the new? A ministry of life and a ministry of glory. For even that which was made glorious had no glory in this respect because of the glory that excels. If you think of all of the glory of the old covenant when it was given, everything that happened at Sinai, all the great works of God, yet in comparison to the new covenant, that old covenant has no glory because of the excelling glory of the new covenant. That is how far beyond it the new covenant is. I want you to get these great contrasts that the inspired writers are making between the old and the new. We've got to be clear on this, brethren. We have to understand it thoroughly. We cannot think that going back to the old covenant for anything is in any way equivalent or as good as anything that we have in the new covenant. Anytime we go back to the old covenant, we are dealing with something that is far inferior and far less glorious than what God has given us through Christ. We need to be sure of that. The old covenant was dedicated with the blood of sacrificed animals, but the new covenant with the blood of Jesus Christ. And so we go back over to the book of Hebrews as I promised that we would. And notice in chapter 9 and verse 18, the first covenant was dedicated, even the first, excuse me, therefore not even the first covenant was dedicated without blood, which is to say it was also dedicated with blood. Moses had spoken every precept to all the people according to the law. He, he took the blood of calves and goats with the water, scarlet wool, hyssop, and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people. The covenant itself and the people entering the covenant were all sprinkled with the blood of animals. And the blood of animals f- further flowed in the sacrifices and the outpouring of all that was done in that covenant for cleansing. But the writer says in verse 23, it was necessary that the copies of the things in the heavens should be purified with these, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices. Those animal sacrifices will not suffice, are not near the quality of the sacrifice that was needed or would be given. And so he says, Christ has not entered the holy place made with hands, which are copies of the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us, not in some symbolic presence of God in some small room in a tent in the wilderness or some small room in a temple in Jerusalem, but into the very actual presence of God in heaven. That's where Christ has gone for us. Not with the blood of animals. That wouldn't get Him in there. It got you in the the tabernacle. It got you in the holy place in the temple. But not in heaven. It doesn't get you in there. What it takes to get in there is the blood of Jesus Christ. And so Christ entered into the reality of the presence of God to appear in the presence of God for us, he says. Not that he should offer himself often as the high priest enters the most holy place every year with the blood of another. Then he would have to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now once at the end of the ages, he has appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. He brings his own blood 
into the holy place and dedicates the way for us to enter into the very presence of God. There could not be greater contrast between the Old Covenant and the New. All of these things, of course, can be studied in much greater detail. I'm just sort of trying to hit the highlights really quickly of some things and then look at some practical significance to what we're talking about in contrasting the covenants uh, in some important ways that I believe are critical for us to understand. One is just what we talked about just now, the sacrifices for sins. In the Old Covenant, under the Law of Moses, the fact that sacrifices for sin had to be offered continually, and particularly once a year on the Day of Atonement, demonstrated that those sacrifices were not ever really ridding anybody of sin. Rather, they served the purpose of reminding people that they had sin. I don't know about you, but while that might be somewhat healthy to be reminded that you have sinned, we all need to remember that once in a while, to be constantly reminded that your sins are still not really taken care of, that you still really don't have full access into the presence of God, is a rather um, unpleasant existence. Let's put it that way. In Hebrews chapter 10, in verses 3 and 4, in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. It is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats should take away sins. But it is possible, and it is a reality, that the blood of Jesus Christ can take away sins. The writer goes on in this very context and says, talking about Christ coming into the world, when He came into the world, as if He's speaking, as He comes into the world to the Heavenly Father, and He says, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you have prepared for Me. In burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin you had no pleasure. God had no pleasure in those things. Then I said, Behold, I have come in the volume of the book. It is written of Me to do Your will, O God. Here I am coming. Jesus is coming into the world to do what God wants done. Previously saying, Sacrifice and offering and burnt offerings and offerings for sin you did not desire and had no pleasure in them which are offered according to the law, according to that first covenant. Then He said, Behold, I have come to do Your will, O God. He takes away the first that He may establish the second. The first and the second what? The first covenant. The second covenant. The first is taken away that he may establish the second. Based on what? Not the blood of bulls and goats. Verse 10. By that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. In chapter 10 and verse 17. The consequence of all of that is, God says, their sins and their lawless deeds, I will remember no more. Here is the difference between the two covenants. A covenant where everybody, every year at least, was reminded that they still had sin. As opposed to the new covenant of Jesus, 
For God says, your sins are washed in the blood of my Son. And you don't have to be reminded of them. And I will remember them no more. Christians do not have to live lives ridden with guilt. Even though we all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But because of the the blood of Jesus Christ, our sins are remembered no more. And I think it's especially important on this day that each of us individually know that. Once God has forgiven a sin through the blood of Christ, you don't have to live with it. It's not there. That's freedom in Christ. What about the place of worship? Well, it was in a tabernacle or a temple. Earlier in chapter 9, the writer had talked about that. It says in the first covenant in verse 1, they had ordinances of divine service and an earthly sanctuary a tabernacle was prepared, the first part, which was the lampstand, the table, the showbread, was called the sanctuary. Beyond the second veil, the part of the tabernacle was called the holiest of all, which had the golden censer, the Ark of the Covenant, overlaid on all sides with gold, which were the golden pot that had the manna, Aaron's rod that budded, so on and so forth. There were the cherubim of glory over the mercy seat. And that was the place of worship. And when Solomon erected a temple after this similar pattern, that was the place of worship. And people went there and stood outside and offered sacrifices. And once a year, the priest would go in with blood on behalf of the people into the holiest place. In verse 11 of this uh, same chapter, In contrast to all of that, the Hebrew writer says this, but Christ came as high priest of the good things to come with the greater and more perfect tabernacle not made with hands, that is, not of this creation. So Christ came and built a building which you can't see. It's invisible. And it's not made of stones. It's made of people. And we are those people in 1 Peter chapter, um, chapter, nine, chapter 2 and verse 5, Peter describes the building of this temple out of us. He says, You also, as living stones, are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. The sacrifices of the Old Testament, as we already read, were not really pleasing to God. The sacrifices of the New, first Christ Himself, and then the sacrifices that we make as a church to God are acceptable through Jesus Christ, because of Jesus Christ, because of what Jesus did. The place of worship is so far different. In actuality, under the New Covenant, it's not even a place, it's a people. And wherever the place is that they are, that's where the worship occurs. Worship music 
is different. In the Old Testament, there was singing and other things as well, including playing of instruments and dancing, among other things. Uh, typical expression of it is found in Second Chronicles chapter 29 and verse 25, where Hezekiah is reinstating some of the uh, worship practices that had kind of fallen by the wayside in that time in Israel's history or Judah's history. And it talks about he, that is Hezekiah, stationing the Levites in the house of the Lord with cymbals. So here are things, you know, you're banging things, stringed instruments with harps according to the commandment of the Lord, of God, the king's seer, of David, I should say, and of Gad, the king's seer, having trouble reading, and of Nathan, the prophet. For thus was the commandment of the Lord by his prophets. God commanded these things, the cymbals and the stringed instruments and all of that, along with the singing, that was part of the worship. This command, this description of Old Testament worship is repeated time and time again, and it often is tied in with the Old Testament sacrifices. In fact, there in Second Chronicles 29, it's tied in with the sacrifices, those animals that were being sacrificed right there in that context. Obviously, is a part of the Old Covenant. It's specified repeatedly in the Old Covenant. It was spoken by the prophets of the Old Covenant. Specifically, that this is what was to be done. We come to the New Covenant of Jesus Christ, and you don't, like a lot of other things, you don't have all of the physical features that you had in the Old Testament. The emphasis is spiritual. We're to sing. And the melody is not made on a mechanical instrument. Paul is really clear about that in Ephesians 5.19 and Colossians 3.16. The melody is made in our heart. physical instrument, not on a stringed instrument, not by banging cymbals. But the melody is made in our hearts. And so just like with other things that we've already talked about, the new covenant becomes a heavenly and spiritual thing. A matter of the heart and not of the letter and not of the physical. Not of the earthly, but of the heavenly. In 1 Corinthians chapter 14 and verse 15, Paul says, I will sing with the Spirit, and I will sing with the understanding also. And then, there was a day for assembling to worship under the Old Covenant, specified in passages like Leviticus chapter 23 and verse 3, where God said, Six days shall work be done, but on the seventh day is a Sabbath of solemn rest, a holy convocation. The word convocation means an assembly. A church meeting, if you will. But it's a holy convocation on the Sabbath, which was the seventh day. You shall do no work on it. It is the Sabbath of the Lord in all your dwellings. But in the New Covenant, we learn that disciples came together on the first day of the week to break bread and to hear God's word proclaimed and to assemble for worship. Acts chapter 20 in verse 7, at times they came together every day, but particularly on the first day of the week, to remember Jesus Christ, to take the emblems of the covenant. You remember Jesus said about the Lord's Supper and concerning especially the fruit of the vine, the cup, he said, this is the new covenant in my blood. You had along with uh, the day of assembly. You had 
lots of other things that went with that, including dietary restrictions, Jewish feasts. Uh, all of those things were included in the Old Covenant as well. They were all done away with by the New Covenant. In fact, in Colossians chapter 2, if you'd like to turn there with me, there are a few really significant verses that, um, that we need to look at as, as we close. Let's start in verse 13 of Colossians 2. You being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he has made you alive together with him, having forgiven you all your trespasses. Talking about Christ forgiving you all your trespasses. Having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which is contrary to us, and has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. So that, that Old Testament writing of requirements, the law of Moses, the covenant, was nailed to the cross of Jesus Christ. He took it out of the way. Having disarmed the principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. Christ won a heavenly victory over principalities and powers in the spiritual realm. And then the text goes on to say, So, let no one judge you in food or drink or regarding a festival or a new moon or Sabbaths, which are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance is Christ. What do we learn? All of those aspects of the Old Covenant foreshadowed realities that would come through Jesus Christ, which are, as we've already said, far superior in every way. You ever uh, got excited by seeing the shadow of something? Probably not much. But maybe you could picture, um, you know, you buying a new house. And you drive around the corner, you don't quite see the house, but you just see the shadow of the house. Ooh, there's the shadow of the house. Wow. But then, wow, there's the real house. Maybe, maybe it's a house somebody just built, you know, and you just purchased this brand new house, and you've been planning this, and now's the time, and you saw the shadow, now you see the real thing. What do you want? You want the, the shadow or the real thing? You, you want that which is not really made out of anything? Or do you want that which is everything? The difference between the covenants could not be greater. It's the difference between the shadow and the substance. What God gave the Israelites on Mount Sinai was a shadow. I don't know why in the world people want to go back and hold on to a shadow. I'm very concerned when people go back and start talking about keeping the Sabbath day or 
wanting instrumental music or burning incense or any number of things that were solely part of that old covenant. None of which can justify us. It's only through Jesus Christ and in the new covenant that we can be right with God. So which covenant are you under? You want the shadow? You want the substance? What are you going to choose? I think most of you would choose the substance, the new covenant of Jesus Christ. Most of you, that's what you've chosen. And so I say to you what Paul says to the Galatians. The Galatians had chosen it too. They'd chosen the new covenant. They'd chosen the reality over the shadow. And he begs them in Galatians chapter 5 and verse 1, to stand fast, therefore, in the liberty by which Christ has made us free and do not be entangled again with the yoke of bondage. Don't go back to that. Don't go back to any part of it for anything. Yes, the things that were written aforetime were written for our learning that we, through patience and comfort of the Scriptures, might have hope. There's a lot we can learn from the Old Testament. There's a lot we do learn. And it's hard to understand the New Testament without the Old Testament. I got all of that. We can understand much more about what we have in Christ because of the shadow. Because of what God did beforehand with the Israelites. But the substance is Christ. Let's not go back to the bondage of the Old Covenant and let's not let our friends and neighbors do it either. Somebody asks you, you know, you get this question, well, y'all don't believe in instrumental music. What's wrong with instrumental music? David had instrumental music. If I've heard that, I don't know how many times I've heard it. You heard that? Yeah. Well, I say, yeah, instrumental music's great if you want to grab hold of the Old Covenant like David did with everything else he did. Is that what you want? Surely not. I'm so thankful that we have the New Covenant of Christ. I know you are. If you've not ever entered into that, if you're here tonight and you've never named the name of Jesus and been washed in his blood by repenting of your sins and confessing his name and being baptized in water for the remission of your sins, now is a great time to do that, to enter into this final, beautiful, glorious covenant that can be yours tonight. We'd ask you to come while we stand and while we sing.